0: Outside of the box thinking and controversy often go hand in hand. New thinking on subjects such as astrobiology, a branch of science controversial in itself due to it being a science with no known examples of astrobiology to study, can often spark controversy because we really don't know what the rules are for such things. Are alien civilizations and technology common? Are they exceedingly rare? Would we recognize it if we saw it? No one knows, yet. And the case can be made that we won't know what an alien civilization looks like until we actually see one. Until then, it's ultimately all just speculation. But it must be discussed and looked for. This is, after all, one of the most profound questions facing the human species. Are we alone? Answering that is a goal of astrobiology. But, given our own existence as a civilization of intelligent life, what shouldn't be surprising is if we do eventually see others. So the question is, what do we look for, which is a specialty of my guest. Most recently, he sparked some controversy in a proposal that the interstellar asteroid Oumuamua could conceivably have artificial origins. This is not to say that it does, only that it's a possibility. This has since been followed up with discoveries and papers that are painting Oumuamua in an even more bizarre light, whatever Oumuamua is, natural object or otherwise, It's fast taking its place as one of the strangest things we've ever seen in space.
1: Welcome to Event Horizon, with John Michael Godier. John on today's program is theoretical physicist Dr. Avi Loeb, the Frank B. Burr, Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University. Dr. Loeb has authored over 600 papers, he is the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, and also serves on the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative. In 2012, Time Magazine selected Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space.
0: Dr. Loeb, welcome back to the program. My pleasure. Now, Dr., you've been in the news recently uh, regarding the first interstellar object we've discovered, Oumuamua. And in particular, you wrote a piece about six strange aspects of Oumuamua, six strange facts. And I wanted to dig into these. The, the first of, it, of them is that there should be either a lot of these objects passing through the solar system at any given time, or they should be very scarce, do you think what? what is your feeling? Do you think they would be we, want, we should not have, have caught this object or we shouldn't have seen it or should these things be everywhere?
2: Well, about a decade ago, uh, I wrote uh, together with two collaborators the very first paper to forecast. How many uh, asteroids should we find in the solar system that came from outside of it? And we did the calculation based on what we know about the solar system. And we predicted that the uh, surveys like Pan-STARRS would not find anything. Uh, so we were off by uh, somewhere between two to eight orders of magnitude, a factor of 100 to 100 million. We thought that there should be far fewer objects than necessary to explain Oumuamua. So the fact that we detected it, first of all, tells us that uh, this population of objects is much more abundant than we expected. Now the question is, where do they come from? And uh, if you go through the numbers, you find that if Umuamua is one out of a population of objects on random trajectories that uh, are filling interstellar space, then there should be uh, of all the one such object per um, volume occupied by the Earth's orbit around the Sun so um, this is quite a large abundance There should be 10 to the power 15 of them right now within uh, the Oort cloud of the solar system so within the outer boundary of the solar system and another way to put it is there should be 10 to the power 15 of these objects a, a thousand trillion objects produced per star over the age of the Milky Way galaxy. And that's a lot of objects, much more than we expected. And so the actual existence of Oumuamua by itself is already uh, a surprise. Uh, but then uh, this, this number of objects, of course, is reduced dramatically if you were to contemplate the possibility that it has an artificial origin. Because then uh, if it's a probe, for example, it may follow a very special trajectory targeting the core of the solar system, the habitable region where life may exist. In that case, uh, objects on plunging orbits uh, would uh, account for Oumuamua and uh, there would be far fewer by by a factor of around uh, 30 million. Uh, less than the, the 10 to the power 15 that I mentioned before. So uh, the, lar- the large number is if you assume that it's one out of a population of random objects. And then, uh, you know, the, the question is, is it uh, natural or, or artificial as to whether this assumption is correct or not? Now, doctor, you also say in the paper
0: that the Umomo occupies a very strange frame of reference, or at least a unique frame of reference within the galaxy.
2: What do you mean by that? Well, it so happens that uh, the object started at rest relative to the so-called local standard of rest, which is the frame of reference uh, obtained by averaging the motion of all the stars in the vicinity of the Sun. So stars are moving relative to each other. And if you take the average of all these motions in, in the neighborhood of the Sun, you get to the local standard of rest and uh, that's the galactic frame of reference so to speak and it so happens that umuamua was at rest in that frame only 1 in 500 stars are so slow as umuamua was before it entered the solar system and so one way to think of it is that uh, Umuamua resembled a buoy on the surface of an ocean that sits uh, still on the surface until a boat comes over and, and kicks it. And so uh, the solar system bumped into Umuamua just like a boat bumps into a buoy on the surface of an ocean. And the relative speed between Umuamua and us uh, is simply a result of uh, us moving towards it. This is rather peculiar because um, if it originated uh, from uh, planetary systems like the solar system, then you would expect it to inherit uh, the motion of the parent star and move at about 20 kilometers per second uh, relative to the local standard of rest. Uh, We don't see that. It seems to be associated with this preferred frame of reference and uh, one possible interpretation is that uh, there is a network of such objects in the galactic frame and they serve as some uh, posts, road posts, and the stars run into them every now and then, like the solar system ran into Oumuamua. Of course, we, we don't really know and we have to wait for the second object to be discovered. If the second one is also at that frame of reference, it would make the likelihood of a random event of this type to be uh, 1 over 500 squared, extremely small probability, one almost one in a million. And so um, I would say that, uh, you know, we just have to wait. And if there is another one coming uh, at the same speed from the same direction, it would look really peculiar. It would indeed. Now. What
0: natural process could produce this? Would this, uh, if, if it is, if it is natural that produces frame of reference, would that simply indicate that umomo has just been out circling the galaxy for a very, very long time?
2: No, because there is no uh, process that can slow down objects to exactly the local standard of rest. Uh, in fact, uh, after the interaction with the sun, Umuamua is not in that frame anymore because it was kicked around. You can think of the buoy analogy. Uh, Once a a, a ship runs into it, uh, it sets it in motion and the buoy is not at rest anymore. And so uh, the same thing happened to Oumuamua. Once it was kicked by the sun, it's not at rest anymore in that frame. And so most of the time, objects get kicked to roughly the speed of stars in that frame of reference. And it's very difficult to keep them at rest. Uh, Only one in 500 stars is so slow and so the chance of it originating from a star that happened to be slow is quite small. Uh, Moreover, uh, if you think about the other planetary systems, most of the objects that are ripped apart from their parent systems Uh, originate from the outer parts of these systems, like the Oort Cloud, because uh, they are the most loosely bound rocks in a planetary system. So the Oort Cloud has objects that, with a very small nudge, can be ripped apart from from it. Uh, Less than a kilometer per second kick would uh, uh, rip them apart from the solar system. And so um, you would expect most of the objects uh, to originate from the outer parts of planetary systems and there they have um, uh, they basically inherit the speed of the host star because to kick them uh, out of the system you need a very small kick if you want uh, an object to be ejected from the inner region Uh, of of a a planetary system. You need to provide it with a much uh, stronger kick. And uh, moreover, in order for it to be in the local standard of rest, it needs to have a kick exactly in the opposite direction to the motion of the star, the parent star, so that the, the two speeds will cancel out each other and the object will end up at rest in the local standard of rest. So the likelihood of that happening is very small and uh, it's simply uh, peculiar to see the first object not only uh, belonging to a population that is much more abundant than we expected, but also being at rest in this special frame of reference. Say
0: we look at astrobiological um, possibilities for a muamua, what would the advantage be to putting it in that frame of reference?
2: Well, it depends on its purpose. and. Uh, one can imagine uh, such objects being uh, serving as uh, roadposts uh, as uh, defining the galactic frame of reference locally. Uh, one can imagine them uh, as uh, staying still in that frame and, and letting uh, stars run into them. Uh, and then of course, perhaps even probing the inner regions, the habitable regions of planetary systems once they enter into it. Uh, it's not at all clear, it all depends <laughs> on what the, the design of this artificial object might be. And, and you know, it's sort of like uh, for us, it could serve as a message uh, in, in a bottle, uh, in a way, uh, that was swept to our shore. Uh, it's a, it could be a technological equipment that we happen to find, uh, um, and, and the meaning of it is yet to be identified. Uh, And of course, you know, it's interesting to contemplate this possibility because if it does belong to some alien technology, uh, we might uh, realize that we are not the smartest kid on the block, uh, that there is uh, someone else out there that is outsmarting us. One could say,
0: you know, you could draw the analogy to um, Earth in that uh, someone from a thousand years ago
2: would not have been able to predict what a cell phone would be. Um, Exactly. 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 And so we we can only imagine things that we have seen. uh, And so our imagination of what might be out there depends on how advanced our technology is. We only have a a couple of centuries of technological development. And, and, uh, you know, we cannot really imagine what our technology would be like a thousand years from now, a million years from now. And of course, the universe is 10 billion years old. So think about how much more advanced the technology might be. Now, if Umumu
0: wasn't strange enough, it presents us other very unique attributes, particularly its shape, which seems to be unique compared to anything in the solar system that we've seen. What are some of the possible shapes that Umuma could be?
2: Right. So uh, what we know is um, that its brightness changed by a factor of 10 as it spun around. So... It it, it rotated over a period of uh, eight hours, and uh, we've seen a number of these rotations of Oumuamua. Uh, There are detailed observations over a period of about five days. I wish the observers continued to monitor it over a month, because then we would figure out its geometry much better. But uh, whatever they provided us with is sufficient to infer that, uh, you know, if it has a had a constant uh, reflectance or uh, albedo, then it must have been uh, 10 times longer than it was wide projected on the sky. Now, even if you take a piece of paper uh, that is extremely thin and put it at some random orientation in front of you, you will never see it uh, edge on, precisely edge on. Most of the time you would see it uh, at some angle and uh, you wouldn't, you know, an axis ratio projected of, of 10 to 1 does not mean that the object is uh, has a, a, a finite thickness. It could be extremely thin. In fact, uh, if you analyze the light curve, uh, the brightness of the object as a function of time, as it uh, was spinning, uh, you would conclude that uh, probably if it has a constant albedo, it was... Much more extreme in shape than one to ten, uh, probably uh, one to several tens, and uh, you know that's that's uh, very extreme because uh, for solar system asteroids or comets, the most that we have seen in terms of changes in brightness is one to three or so, and so uh, we are talking about an order of magnitude, a factor of ten more uh, extreme in shape than than we are used to, and. Um, uh, and and so the question is, what is this shape? And uh, an analysis of the tumbling motion of this object implied that it could be one of two um, likely shapes. If it if it is uh, in a very excited state of tumbling, uh, the kind of state that you expect from a lot of kicks along its uh, tumultuous uh, journey, uh, then it should be pancake-like, and. Uh, If it, on the other hand, if it suffered very few kicks and it's sort of at the least uh, excited state in terms of its stumbling, then it's most likely to be a cigar-shaped object. Now, uh, if you look at all the artist illustrations that appeared uh, online, they mostly refer to the uh, cigar-shaped object. However, I would find the the pancake shape the configuration much more likely because it's quite likely that this object suffered a lot of kicks along its uh, lengthy journey and so that's interesting by itself that that based on its tumbling motion if you assume that it's in the most excited state because of the many kicks that it suffered then it should be a pancake-like geometry very extreme shape without any reference to the possibility that it's a sail that already sounds very exotic now
0: this this very fast tumbling, this rotation that it exhibits. How does this uh, relate to the local standard of rest? That it's it seems to be sitting there in one aspect, but it seems to be highly excited in another. How do those two relate? Well, uh,
2: the the motion relative to the local standard of rest is of the object as a whole. The tumbling motion is, if you go to the frame of the object. The object spins around, and so um, that's a completely different uh, type of, of motion that is a result of the fact that you know one end of the object felt a, a slightly different force than the other end, and you can get that when the object passes near near uh, stars or or when uh, dust or or gas is uh, scooped by the object so one end might not be exactly uh, feeling the same force as the other end and as a result the object would tumble or spin around but that that motion around its uh, around some axis has nothing to do with the overall motion of the object relative to the local standard of rest these are two separate things and in fact uh, the spinning motion uh, has a period of eight hours a very short period so when you monitor the, the motion of the object, for example, in the sky, uh, you can average over the spin of the object around its axis because it takes only eight hours and, and it takes months for the, it took months for, for Umuamua to pass in our vicinity and it takes uh, thousands of years for it uh, to cross uh, the Kuiper Belt and eventually even longer uh, to cross the entire solar system. So um so um, these are two different uh, quantities, the spin of the object uh, uh, compared to its motion uh, in space. Now, recently, a paper came out based on
0: observations or actually non-observations from the Spitzer Space Telescope. It looked for Oumuamua and simply didn't see it, implying that was must be very small, and for us to have seen it at all, it must be very shiny, bright surfaces. It also failed to detect things like carbon dioxide, which is what you would expect if if
2: it were a comet. What does all of this say about OMUMA? Yeah, that's very interesting. This paper, this report came about... Uh... Uh, about a week or so after uh, our paper was published in the Astrophysical Journal. So I didn't know about it uh, when we wrote a paper about the, the possibility that UMOMOA is a light sail. Uh, and it's fully consistent. The results that were reported from Spitzer are fully consistent uh, with our original proposal. Um, basically, Spitzer did not detect anything. Uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked at Umomoa but didn't see anything and that means that it didn't see any heat emitted infrared radiation emitted by the object as it passed in the vicinity of the earth and that since we know uh, the trajectory of the or- of the object we know its surface temperature it was heated by sunlight and reached a certain temperature on its surface, we can calculate that temperature and the fact that we don't see any heat emitted from it with the Spitzer Space Telescope sets an upper limit on the size of the object. We know the temperature of the surface, so we can set a limit on the area of the surface that is emitting from the fact that we haven't seen any emission. And that upper limit on the size is of order 100 to 200 meters. And that's smaller than we originally expected based on the typical reflectivity of comets or asteroids so the fact that the object is smaller than originally expected implies that it must be shinier because we see a certain amount of sunlight reflected but now from a smaller surface so the surface has to be more shiny in order to reflect the same amount of light that we see in fact if the object is only 20 meters in size then it must be a perfect reflector, must reflect all the sunlight impinging on its surface. Uh, If it's 100 meters in size, then it has to reflect about 20 percent, a fifth of the sunlight uh, shining on it. And that's sort of at the upper end of how shiny solar system objects can be. Uh, Asteroids or comets are at most uh, reflecting 20 percent of the sunlight falling on them. And the the typical reflectance is a few percent. So we can already say that this object is unusual in the sense that it's at the upper end of the distribution of uh, reflectance. Uh, And it's about 10 times more shiny, at least 10 times more shiny, than a typical asteroid or comet. And of course, that is entirely consistent with the possibility that it may be artificial in origin. Combining that with the unusual shape Uh, the unusual abundance, the unusual velocity, each of these factors is unusual on its own. And when you have so many factors that are unusual, you start wondering, what is this object if it's nothing like an asteroid or a comet that we have seen before? If it's so common, you know, the nursery of such uh, objects must be quite different from the solar system. And irrespective of whether it's natural or artificial, We will definitely learn something new when we find more of the same, more objects like this one. Uh, We definitely have the wrong idea about where such objects are produced and how they are produced. And uh, that's exciting because it means that by getting more data on objects like Oumuamua, we can learn something new. And um, it's a whole new way of uh, exploring what may happen in other planetary environments. it's sort of like uh, walking on the beach and uh, looking at seashells that were swept ashore and examining them to learn about their origin. And uh, every now and then, one can find an object that is of artificial origin, like a plastic bottle in which there is a message. Uh, But even if it's not artificial, you learn about how these objects are produced. And I think it opens a new window into um, what happens far away in other near other stars, uh, without uh, forcing us to develop spacecrafts that will reach that far. So we are relying on on the fact that the solar system is scooping up objects as it moves through interstellar space. These objects spent a lot of time on their way to us, and that saves us the time to travel elsewhere. Okay. So we have two possibilities
0: for a light sail, something that's being affected by um, radiation pressure. Is there, first we'll do the natural. Is there any process that you can think of that can produce a natural light sail? in the galaxy. Now, I, I, I wonder about things like that because if it's a fragment of a planet, you know, Earth can produce some very, very strange materials like mica, where you can have this very thin sheet of material that might fit the bill. Can you think of any natural process that would produce a natural light sail?
2: Well, I was trying to think about that and uh, the farthest I could get is imagining the process of spallation. So, when when an asteroid impacts on a planet like Mars or the Earth, it could potentially lift the outermost layer of the crust of the planet and um, create a sort of pancake-like piece of rock um, that flies out. And in fact, people talked about that in the context of uh, panspermia, a process that could deliver life from one planet to another, because we know that rocks from Mars, for example, reach the Earth and presumably vice versa, and if they had life in them, then uh, perhaps life was brought to Earth uh, from Mars. And and how can you deliver life? Well, uh, one way to do so is if life exists on the surface of a planet, and you lift the outermost layer of the planet without, without actually hitting it, much and there is evidence that uh, some of one of the rocks that arrived to earth from mars was not heated by more than 40 degrees or so in the process from the launch till uh, re-entry the inner core of the rock was not really heated much and one way to do that is through spallation Uh, now the problem with that is uh, it's hard to imagine it generating something as thin as as a millimeter Uh, you expect it um, to be meters thickness. And uh, moreover, um, as it gets lifted off this plate of rock, it will presumably break down into pieces that are rounder. And that's why we see most asteroids being at most one to three in, in in their axis lengths. And we don't see things that are so extreme. And so I, I simply, the answer is no, I could not think of a method of generating a thin film that will be sturdy enough to survive the journey in interstellar space. Uh, and so if it turns out to be, uh such uh, an object uh, i would argue that it's most likely to be artificial and with that we have to go
0: to a break i'm joined today by dr avi loeb of harvard university we'll be back in a moment
1: ah john it is good to be back are you settled back into your routine
0: I am indeed. It was an interesting few weeks, to say the least.
1: So you enjoyed your surprise trip to Pirate Adventureland.
0: I'll admit it. I was surprised, but did you really have to drive the LeBaron that fast? Those numbers on the signs are limits, not targets.
1: In your car, John. They're achievements.
0: Did you remove all the modifications, including restoring the LeBaron's original voice?
1: No, I left it out, John. We all know
0: Erin needs the work. Did you just... And we're back with Dr. Loeb. Now, Dr. Loeb, I suppose one of the strangest aspects of Mu is this odd acceleration that it, it seems to have as it leaves the solar system. Now, a lot of people are talking about things like a, a gradual outgassing of maybe pure water vapor or water ice that's pushing this thing.
2: How likely is that? Well, we haven't seen anything like it in other comets. And what you need is um, uh, about a tenth of the mass of Oumuamua to evaporate in order to give it the necessary push that was observed. And that is independent of its size. It's simply a matter of momentum conservation in order to provide it with the extra kick that was inferred observationally. Uh, about a tenth, 10% of its mass needs to evaporate and and push it through the rocket effect. And that implies that there should be a lot of gas behind it. Now, how come we haven't seen it? Well, first of all, we haven't seen a cometary tail. That would have been easy to detect because it scatters sunlight, and that's usually due to dust particles. So the Michel et al. uh, paper that uh, detected the deviation uh, from an orbit shaped just by the sun's gravity Conjecture that maybe the dust particles are bigger than expected and therefore we can't see them uh, because if you have big enough dust grains, uh, they will not reflect sunlight as effectively as small dust grains that have roughly the size of the wavelength of sunlight. And so they argued maybe there are big chunks of di- you know, big dust particles ejected instead of small ones. The problem with that suggestion Is that the Spitzer Space Telescope looked at this object and it was sensitive, very sensitive, to carbon-based molecules like carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide, which usually accompany the evaporation of ices on the surface of a comet. And it put very tight limits on the evaporation. It didn't see any emission from carbon-based molecules. And so in that paper, again, the conservative observers argued for a more conventional explanation. They said, oh, maybe it's pure water. Maybe you just have water molecules without any carbon-based molecules. But that is hard to believe because usually carbon and oxygen are made in stars in similar quantities. And and, and, and whenever you have oxygen, you have also carbon and vice versa. And so it's hard to imagine how you would get water molecules to evaporate off the surface of Umuamua without carbon-based molecules. In addition, there is an argument that has nothing to do with uh, watching the dust or the, or the gases off the surface of Umuamua that uh, rules out the possibility of uh, cometary outgassing. And that's based on the fact that all comets that show outgassing change their spin period. So if you have enough thrust to push them through the outgassing, that same thrust is working unevenly across the surface of the object. And as a result, it changes the spin period of the object so that you have these tiny jets uh, pushing on one end of the object stronger than uh, the jets on the other end. And so as the result, the the tumbling motion of the object changes and, and the rotation, the spin period changes. And we see that uh, very often on comets. And there was a paper analyzing uh, what we might have expected Oumuamua to do if uh, its extra push was a result of outgassing and it would have been easily visible. So the limits we have on the change in the spin period of Oumuamua rules out on its own outgassing at the level required to push it. When we make the analogy with comets It's clear that a standard cometary outgassing process is not in effect. We don't see the gases, we don't see the dust, and we don't see the change in the spin period. And when you combine all these factors, to me, they imply that there is no cometary activity on this object. Anyone that argues otherwise needs to find or identify another example of a comet where all three factors were somehow circumvented. And, um, you know, the situation is very similar uh, to um, uh, what we see, for example, in galaxies. Uh, we see stars moving and they move much faster than than we expect. And um, this is an anomaly. And uh, whenever you have an anomaly in astrophysics, you start wondering what could account for it. And uh, you start with conventional explanations. And so uh, people tried over the years to come up with conventional explanations and they couldn't. And then the concept of dark matter was invented to accommodate this extra mass that you need in galaxies. So we believe that there is some extra matter that we cannot see and we call it dark matter. This is a hypothesis, it's not proven. We haven't detected dark matter yet, but the idea, the concept of dark matter is part of the mainstream because there is no conventional explanation other than that to explain a series of anomalies that we see, not just the motion of stars, but also other facts in cosmology. And so it's a a standard element of the scientific process that when you are confronted with an anomaly, you try to come up with conventional explanations. But, But when these explanations have a problem, when you don't see evidence for them, or they contradict some evidence that you find, then you have to come up with more innovative ideas, with more imaginative ideas. And this is part of the scientific process. So I don't see at all why any scientist would be against coming up with a potential artificial origin explanation to this extra push uh, that we see in the case of Oumuamua. Just like in the case of dark matter, I would say dark matter is as imaginative, if if not more than the idea of an extraterrestrial civilization because uh, the concept of an extraterrestrial civilization is based on two facts. One, that we exist. And second, that the conditions on planets throughout the galaxy are very similar to the conditions on Earth. About a quarter of all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy have a planet of the size of the earth with a surface temperature similar to the earth such that liquid water may flow on its surface and the chemistry of life as we know it would exist and so there is nothing really speculative about saying that what we find on earth exists elsewhere where the physical conditions are similar. I see that as a relatively straightforward extrapolation. And so to me, it's a complete mystery as to why the possible existence of another civilization is considered outside the mainstream of astronomy. I don't think it should be. I think it should be as much in the mainstream as the concept of dark matter, if not more, because we know that we exist. We, we have a proof of principle that a civilization can exist. Now, uh, you know, there are even more imaginative ideas out there. For example, extra dimensions, which are part of the mainstream of particle physics, even though we have no evidence for extra dimensions. And somehow, sociologically, it's well accepted that you can speculate about extra dimensions as a way of unifying quantum mechanics and gravity. So, to me, it sounds a bit uh, inappropriate to resist the idea of extraterrestrial civilizations, because it's so rooted in facts that we know are true and uh, therefore if we have an object that behaves in a peculiar fashion on so many counts i would not dismiss up front the possibility that it's artificial in origin and uh, it should be on the table and we sh- what mo- many people do is dismiss it upfront. they say oh my gut feeling is that it's probably natural the problem with gut feelings is that they are based on past experience And so if you expect the future to be the same as the past, gut feeling is a good guide. But if you want to allow yourself to make discoveries, you cannot rely on gut feelings. So, for example, uh, quantum mechanics was discovered by experiments, and it uh, brought in the concept of action at a distance, which was not very intuitive to the physicists at the time. And in fact, Einstein resisted it. Einstein said it's spooky action at a distance. I cannot believe that it exists. And he wrote papers arguing that quantum mechanics is misinterpreted and it's in fact predictive, it's not probabilistic. And and, uh, there were experiments done in the decades that followed Einstein's resistance and they all demonstrated that he was wrong, that his gut feeling was wrong. So Einstein had the wrong gut feelings. We should learn from that. Uh, You know, Galileo, for example, use experimentation to check the gut feeling that we have that heavy objects fall faster than light objects. And he found that they fall at the same rate. Here is another example where experimentation taught us something that our gut feeling did not really forecast. Our gut feeling was that the sun moves around the earth because we see it moving in the sky. And then, you know, again, Galileo argued, otherwise he would he was put in house arrest if there w- would have been Twitter at the time, obviously most of the tweets would have been against him. But that doesn't matter. The sun doesn't move around the earth, irrespective of what Twitter says or what people think. There are facts out there. You know, the nature of Umuamua is whatever it is. It doesn't matter what we think or what the popular view is on Twitter. Now, that, that brings up biases.
0: And, of course, anything when one says the word alien... It it brings up a bias, because on, on one count, there's a pop-cultural sensationalist phenomena regarding aliens, of course, which, you know, doesn't really seem to have any kind of a basis. But there's also, are we alone is one of the most profound questions humanity can ask. So it seems to be something that scientists should want to answer. And, we, and, and to an extent, it's done with SETI searches and things like that. But nothing says that, uh, you know, detecting a radio beacon... 10 light years away is any different than detecting a probe passing through the solar system we just don't know what the rules are on such things and you know we would
2: send probes if we could um now
0: right one thing that
2: we we are we are actually contemplating sending uh, technological bottles uh, to other planetary systems and 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 if we are starting to think about it now then you know, a civilization that is much older than ours may have done that a long time ago, and so we should be obviously open-minded. And just to finish the point about this peculiar motion of Oumuamua, the deviation from its trajectory uh, as anticipated based on the sun's gravity implies that if you want radiation pressure to provide the extra force, and that's the only possible force that I could think of other than outgassing, then you need the object to be very thin, less than a millimeter in thickness and more than 20 meters in in size. And so that's uh, a thickness that is uh, at least 10,000 times smaller than the size of the object. And it sounds like a sail. And that's what you need in order for the sunlight to push it enough to accommodate the extra push that it exhibited during its orbit. Although the push is only a tenth of a percent of the force, the gravitational force from the sun, it's still very significant. And the object goes in a direction that is quite different from what one would have expected without this force. Now, the elephant in the room, I suppose to... To sort of
0: wrap up the strangeness surrounding this object is its trajectory, which brought it, as I recall, at its closest approach, 0.15 AU from Earth. So it just seems to have picked the interesting planet in the solar system to pass relatively close by.
2: Does that seem strange to you? I mean, what are the odds of that? Well, that... It's not necessarily strange because uh, we would have found this object only if it passed close to us. So this may be a selection effect. It all depends on how many such objects exist out there. So, for example, we can find out if we develop a telescope that is much more sensitive than pan-stars. Uh, and we are actually in the process of doing so. Uh, there is the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, LSST, that will become operational within three years. And it will be much more sensitive than pan And in that case, we could see objects much farther away. And if we find other objects passing farther away, and many more of them, of course, because the chance of that happening is far greater than the chance of an object passing close to the Earth, Then we will be uh, assured that there is a large population of such objects. If on the other hand, we search for a year or two and not find anything, then it would mean that this object was very special. It was on a special trajectory and it does, it's not a part of a a, a much larger population. And then the only way to find more about it would be to chase it down. And uh, (laughs) that would require developing a technology that is much better than the chemical rockets we currently have because the object is moving faster than our uh, spacecrafts. And uh, in principle, it's possible that within a decade or two, we'll, we'll develop such a technology and then be able to chase it down. But the, such a mission would be extremely expensive, more than a billion dollars, because we will have to equip the spacecraft with a small telescope such that it can track the fading image of Umuamua. Uh, so Umuamua is, is very peculiar. Uh, it's sort of like a guest that came to dinner uh, from the street without us expecting it. And by the time we noticed how weird it is, it was already out the door into the dark street. And by now it's extremely faint and um, because it reflects sunlight uh, at a lower level. And uh, in order to track it, we need to equip a spacecraft with a telescope that will monitor where it is and correct the course such that it will approach it. So if we are barring that, say we
0: can't, you know, we just can't justify going out and looking at it directly with a flyby. Is there any ways left to observe Muamua, or is it just simply too far away now? It's
2: too far away. It was already too far in January 2018. And now it's a year later. the The problem is that it gets dimmer as uh, inversely with the distance to the fourth power, because the amount of sunlight that it intercepts declines as inversely with the distance squared. And then the amount of light that we get back has another factor of one over distance squared. And so altogether, it's uh, one over distance to the fourth. So very quickly, it uh, dims down, unless, of course, it produces its own artificial light, but we haven't detected any. So um, it seems like this object was already too faint for the Hubble Space Telescope to see it uh, a year ago. And by now it's extremely faint. And so if we wanted to chase it down, we would do so by following the path that it took and extrapolating it and just searching around once we get closer to it, searching around for its image and then uh, getting even closer and, and taking an image but um, if we don't see additional objects with uh, pan stars or with uh, uh, lsst then there would be a seventh peculiar strange fact about umuamua the fact that it's rare and that would also imply that it appeared uh, at a special time um, it could still be artificial and we could still have more of the same because every few years there is a new object showing up but If we don't see new objects, if we don't see many more objects when we improve our sensitivity, that would argue that something strange happened on October uh, 19th, uh, 2017. Uh, This was a very unique object. And and I should say, um, you know, that one of the problems that I have with claims for uh, UFOs, unidentified flying objects is that uh, there were reports over the past decades about such objects and over the past few decades, our technology for detecting uh, objects or images has improved dramatically. We can now see things much fainter than we could have seen uh, several decades ago. And yet all of these claims are always on the margin of detectability. Or believability and that makes them unlikely to be real because if they were real 30 years ago we would see very clear evidence for them using present-day equipment and uh, so the um, same should apply for an object like umuamua if another one comes along and we have much better instruments looking at it we would know much more about it now that, that's interesting because it brings up ideas like you know old ideas like
0: like von Neumann probes possibly being in the solar system. And if one happened to dip in the atmosphere and someone saw it, it would be an unidentified flying object. But that always, you know, suffers from, of course, you know, geography. For example, certain countries see UFOs more than other countries and all sorts of things that suggest that there's nothing there. But do you think there is anything there? I mean, could that, that be a viable thing to study if, if it's even possible?
2: Well, I approach this subject as a scientist, just like I approach the the issue of dark matter in galaxies. And the the healthy way to approach it is not to have a prejudice, not to have assumptions. The mistakes that are made very often uh, are uh, to assign some likelihood to one outcome or another. And the problem with that is that, you know, if you tell yourself something does not exist, then you never check for it. And and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And uh, if, if you have a very clear agenda when you are taking data, uh, you will not discover new things because you are guided in a very narrow path that you define ahead of time. And, you know, that's one of the issues I have with uh, some uh, funding schemes, uh, funding of research where... Um, you are asked to uh, declare ahead of time what you will discover if you are given the grant and the, that's a, a self-contradiction because uh, the whole idea of doing science is to be open-minded, to, to find things that you haven't expected. And, and so the best way to approach, especially a, a subject as a novel as, as the search for life elsewhere, Is without prejudice and as a way of exploration just trying to collect as much data as possible uh, and uh, not have a prejudice and and whatever the sky teaches us we will learn and uh, we will get wiser in that process and you know even if umuamua ends up being natural as i mentioned before we will learn something new because we haven't expected it to have all these properties And we should be humble in the way we approach nature. We should not believe that we know the truth before we uncover it. And I think the mistake that many people make is out of arrogance. Uh, For example, people argue, you know, we might be unique, we might be special. That shows arrogance. I prefer to believe that we are not special, that life exists elsewhere uh, in a way that is similar to what we find here on Earth or even more sophisticated ways. And the way to find out is just by collecting data and uh, let's use our best uh, telescopes in the future to find more of the same, more objects like Oumuamua. And every object that enters the solar system we should definitely examine. That should be a new method, a new window into uh, the universe that was not explored so far because Oumuamua was really the very first uh, object to enter the solar system from outer space.
0: Now, to flip this around, um, you're intimately involved with Breakthrough Starshot, which essentially the ultimate goal is for human civilization to send out probes to other star systems. Now, this is a proof of concept for now, but what is a time frame for a flyby of another star system
2: with Breakthrough Starshot? Um, Well, we have to develop the technology. The the idea behind Starshot was that we would like... A technology that allows us to reach another star within our lifetime. And since I'm 56 years old and the founder of the project, Yuri Milner, is of the same age, we define 20 years as the time that we allow for a probe to reach another star uh, so that we can see it during our lifetime. Uh, There are other people involved in the project that are older than us and they wanted an even faster speed. But if you imagine uh, a probe that could reach the Alpha Centauri system, the nearest star system within 20 years. You need to provide it with uh, 20% the speed of light, a fifth of the speed of light, because Alpha Centauri is four light years away. And so it takes light four years to reach us from, from there. Uh, if there is a civilization out there, they don't really know about the elections of uh, 2016 uh, because the signal is halfway to Alpha Centauri right now. It's four light years away. so. The elections took place two years ago uh, and it's halfway. Um, And so um, uh, if you want to reach Alpha Centauri in 20 years, you need uh, to launch a spacecraft at a fifth of the speed of light. And uh, when I looked into it, uh, there aren't many technologies that can do that. And the only one that I could uh, identify is pushing a sail with the force of light. Um, Because uh, then you can in principle reach the speed of light uh, and you don't carry the fuel with you. You're not uh, limited by the mass of the fuel that you have to carry with you as in the case of rockets. And uh, when I recommended this method to uh, Yuri Milner, I told him the situation is quite similar to getting married. Uh, you just need one solution uh, for, to solve your problem, uh, not more than one. Uh, and so the fact that we identify one technique is good enough uh, and we should be happy about it. And so now we are working on developing the technology, demonstrating that indeed one can combine a lot of uh, small lasers into one coherent beam that is very powerful. What one needs is roughly the power uh, used for liftoff of the space shuttle, about 100 gigawatt uh, during a period of a few minutes. And instead of delivering it to the space shuttle, Uh, one needs to deliver it to a single gram of material so that this uh, single gram will reach a fifth of the speed of light. And um, uh, that can be done because, uh, for example, this single gram of material can include a camera, a navigation device, a communication device. These are the the guts of a cell phone um, where the electronics is miniaturized already to that level. Uh, And one can imagine a sail that is not weighing much more than that, that has roughly the size of a person. And what you need is to shine a laser beam that is 100 gigawatt in power on this light sail and push it over a few minutes. And the laser beam can be produced on Earth and then um, go through the atmosphere. And if the sail is released by some other ship above the atmosphere, then it would feel the thrust from the laser and reach a fifth of the speed of light across a distance, roughly five times the distance to the moon. And so, altogether, that was the concept that we came up with. And it faces many challenges, uh, many technological barriers. What we are focusing on right now is demonstrating the laser technology, that we can combine a lot of small laser beams into one powerful coherent beam, and the light sail technology. Uh, what we want is to identify materials that have a very good reflectivity, because if only one part in a hundred thousand of the laser beam gets absorbed in the sail, it will burn it up. And so we need a very good reflector. and um, so, on the one hand, you want material that is a very good reflector. That you want the shape of the laser beam to be such, um, the shape of the sail to be such that it, it will uh, ride in a stable fashion on the laser beam. So, you might think maybe an umbrella shape is the best. But, in fact, uh, we calculated that a spherical shape might be even better, uh, sort of like a a balloon. Um, that is being pushed by a hollow laser beam, uh, that might be a good uh, stable configuration. Uh, And uh, we are working on the light sail design and composition at the moment. So we have uh, allocated grants uh, to various uh, research teams, about a dozen of them on the laser beam uh, and about a dozen on uh, the light sail, um, and to start developing the necessary technologies and so we are at a very preliminary stage right now, but but we have uh, a promise for $100 million uh, for this research and development phase over the next decade uh, from Yuri Milner. And uh, I, I would not... Uh, um, shy away from, from admitting that the the reason uh, I, I thought about a light cell interpretation of Oumuamua was the fact, was my involvement in this project, and uh, I'm chairing the advisory board for Starshot, and, and that uh, knowledge of, of the underlying physics allowed me to consider the possibility of a light cell for Oumuamua.
0: And that was segment one of my recent interview with Avi Loeb of Harvard. Part two will debut in two weeks. But for next week's show, I'll be sitting down with Emily Lakdawalla for a discussion of solar system geology. See you next week!